If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I imagine everybody watched the Super Bowl and saw Tom Brady, the superhuman being who has more Super Bowl championships than any single franchise now. This week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Chris Warnowski, and Jane Cahoon. Did you all watch the game? I did. And I watched the beginning of it and couldn't take any more. So we watched a, um, a really good documentary, the one about 95. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was glad that the reps called kansas city for all the the cheating they do because they weren't called when they played the browns if the browns would have gotten those calls they probably would have won the game i mean kansas city holds people every play and the refs weren't letting them and that kind of ended their their run chris you didn't watch it i I tuned in for a minute and then i realized like it's not going to be a great game so so we ended up watching the sopranos the show was great though and Susie dorman who's originally from northeast ohio got to do the coin flip as one of the honorary captains. She's an ICU nurse in Tampa. So that was a really cool Northeast Ohio connection. Yeah, we, we don't have a team in it. So that's the way we get into <laughs> All right, let's begin. Is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus vaccination plan designed to help people in rural areas at the expense of people in the state's big cities? This is an interesting question because I think if you were to design a vaccination plan for an urban center like Cleveland, you would have a big mass vaccination center for all sorts of reasons to help people understand what to do instead of leaving people with poor broadband and limited transportation to figure out how to get it. I just thought we should have a discussion about this because clearly the statistics are showing that poor minority communities are not getting the vaccination. What DeWine is doing isn't working. We actually predicted when he announced it that it wouldn't work. But my question now is, is it almost designed to fail? And it's a good question to ask now because President Biden announced over the weekend that he's going to mobilize the army to send up mass vaccination centers in states and starting in California and somewhere else. No mention of Ohio yet, but could be interesting if that started to be discussed here. So what do you think? You know, when DeWine first started rolling out these various phases and his his plan for the vaccination, he made it very clear he wanted to have providers available in every single one of the 88 counties. And I think that was his way of ensuring equity here. But as you said, it did not work out that way. Well, a mass vaccination center would be useless in a rural community because they're spread out so far. But he said, I want people to have them close to home, which means that in rural communities, they can get to somebody. But it it, it was like the voting. I mean, I'm saying I think the intentions were good, but it's, you know, it might be time to shift gears on this. I mean, Laura Johnston, if we had a mass vaccination center, do you think it would be easier for people in Cleveland neighborhoods to figure this out? Absolutely. Especially if you had you didn't have appointments as much as we don't want to, you know, wait in line all the time. But then it wouldn't 
be benefiting the people who have the best internet access and you had a time, maybe you could do it by alphabet, you know, last names here this day. And if you had it at the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse or First Energy Stadium, then people would have mass transit to be able to get there and they would know where to go. It would be very simple. And yeah, DeWine has said all along that he wants it in every community. He believes this is the way to get it to people, but he's working with major pharmacy chains. And I don't know that CVS has, you know, a store in every corner in the middle of Cleveland. Like, sure, it's easy to find one in a suburban shopping area, but are they located where everyone else lives? I don't think so. I I just think it feels short-sighted. And I think that urban centers should have vaccine centers. I mean, we said from the beginning that this was going to be harder in minority communities because they don't trust the government when it comes to vaccines because there was a lot of abuse in the past. So if you know that you have a challenge on that, why don't you form a strategy aimed at that? And clearly he did not. The, The strategy he has makes it more difficult for those communities to get the vaccine, not easier. So so either you go into the neighborhoods to set up mobile units or you come up with something that is is going to be more likely, which gets back to my question. Was this designed that way? We've we've seen a long history in Columbus of sticking it to the cities and taking care of the rural communities over and over and over again. Is this a manifestation of that? Are we are we actually playing politics with vaccinations? There's a fair amount of this that feels like trying to figure it out in real time. And and I don't know that it is as nefarious as saying, like, we're going to stick it to, you know, poor inner city communities. Like, I, I don't know that it's that that abrupt. I mean, it's 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 there are challenges for this in rural parts of the country, too. I mean, it's not like CVS is in a town of 1000 out in the middle of nowhere either. And and I, and I think what what gets back to your point about there being a mass vaccination site in every county those actually work in rural counties. I grew up in a rural community and and you plan your life around those trips you take to a big city. And and it's hard to, you know, you go grocery shopping once a month, you go grocery shopping twice a month because your town doesn't have a grocery store either because, you know, Walmart knocked, knocked those all out of business. And so, you know, you, you do these pilgrimages all the time. And so mass vaccination sites would work in, in, in smaller counties too. That's Chris Warnowski. But okay, so so I I agree. I don't think there was a sinister plot here. I don't think this was politics. But wouldn't you have thought that before you lay out your plan, you'd ask some of these questions like, okay, we have people that have poor broadband and very poor access to transportation. So how do we deal with that? Because they don't have drugstores. They're just like they're in a food desert. They're in a pharmacy desert. How do you deal with that? And it doesn't seem like that part of the conversation was had, or if it was had, they came up with a failed plan, right? I mean, that assumes that everybody who lives in a city has the ability to get down to a mass vaccination site. And, you know, I mean, well, they're, they're happy, though, because if they didn't, churches could get buses to go like they do for voting. I mean, there, there are ways to get people to a central site mm-hmm. because we have a history of that. I mean, every election day that happens. So there are ways of doing it. And as Laura points out, if it's a central location, there is public transportation to it. The thing is, is that every every idea that you have is going to have a negative consequence for something else. And so if, if you put it one place, it makes it difficult for somebody else. And I think in this in this plan, and I can't believe that I'm edging up toward anything that, that resembles a defense of this plan, <laughs> he is trying to put 
these sites where people live in some degree so that they don't have to take a long bus ride or so that they don't have to get a ride or find a car or or do something. And I think, you know, I think that that is part of the thinking of having this spread out. What we're learning is that it may not be effective or it may not be reaching people. I mean, we talked about this Friday. His outreach in the Black community seems to be well, let's talk to faith leaders. And it's like, okay, I mean, you have to assume that that helps part of African-American communities, but they may not reach all of them. And so if that is that their only plan of outreach in those communities? And, and, and you know, I think it's why they right, focus so much on other parties. I, 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 don't, I don't agree with you. I don't think he did put it where people live, but I can't say that for sure. Uh, Jane Cahoon, I think maybe we should map the 90 locations in Cuyahoga <laughs> County and see how many of them I, are actually on the east side of Cleveland and see how far people are from these points. We've done this with other things. So so let's find out if in the city people are much more distant than they are elsewhere. It's a, I, it's a good point you raise, Chris. To, I just uh, want to say, I'm not, I'm not saying that that is what happened. I'm saying that that is how... He has defined what he is doing. I'm, okay. Whether he's sticking to it or not is another story. But let's, what I'm saying is, is that what he's that's what he has told the public. Right. So let's let's see. Let's look at it. And I'm adding and, it to my multi-page list of things <laughs> you want to get accomplished, Chris. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Should First Energy and its executives be worried now that a nonprofit has pleaded to racketeering, admitting that it took $61 million in First Energy money? to fuel the bribes of corrupt House Bill 6. Jane Cahoon, I, I'm still kind of taken aback. The money machine has pleaded guilty to racketeering. I'm not even sure how an entity pleads guilty <laughs> to a crime. But, but if, if they're admitting, yes, we took the $61 million for the bribery scheme, and First Energy is the provider of the $61 million, isn't First Energy in a little bit of trouble here? Well, I, I guess this is just one more reason for them to be worried. I mean, I think they should have been worried from day one when Company A or however they were referred to in the charging documents, uh, you know, that was clearly First Energy. <laughs> so, but yeah, this really kind of seals it up. The the fact that this dark money group, which is called Generation Now, has agreed to to plead guilty to a federal racketeering charge. So this plea agreement was filed Friday. As you said, they basically admit that 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 this group was at the center of the scheme to funnel the sixty one million dollars in bribes from First Energy and its affiliates to Larry Householder, the now ex-speaker of the House. And as we've said before, the charges lay out how Householder used all that money to advance his political career and become House Speaker and get this corrupt bill passed and keep it from being repealed. So um you know, as you said, it is an entity pleading guilty, which is sort of, you know, you can't put an entity in jail, but they have uh, agreed to forfeit nearly $1.5 million to the federal government, as well as any other assets they they might have received as part of this bribery scheme. So they, they were an official nonprofit, right? The 501c3, that's the way mm-hmm. we understand it. And they generally have boards of directors. I think it might even be a requirement. So. <laughs> If the entity has pleaded guilty to racketeering, does that have any liability for all the people that were running it? I mean, the the, the entity didn't make a decision. People made the decision. Right. So, it, it's weird the way federal law works, and I am no expert on this, but 
my understanding is, you know, an entity can plead guilty to something, but it's not a personal thing where you put somebody in jail on the board of directors because the entity pleaded guilty. Now, Jeff Longstreth, who was one of Householder's top aides, he's already pleaded guilty in this scheme. And he was the one who largely controlled this money for Householder. So, you know, he's already personally liable here for, you know, the charge against him. But I don't think, you know, you go down and see who was on the board and start making them liable. I don't think that's the way this works. Okay. All right. That's an interesting one and and a huge development because there's no more alleged bribery scheme, right? This is an admitted $61 million bribery scheme. That's a game changer. And you got to wonder what's going to happen to the former First Energy chairman, CEO Chuck Jones. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Should Cuyahoga County residents find good news in the fact that the Board of Health's coronavirus advisory, the stay-at-home advisory, expired January 31st? Lord Johnson, this kind of slipped out on Friday, a week after it happened. What does it mean? Yeah, Friday at like five, right? So funny the county didn't announce this. Shortly after the state pushed back its curfew to 11 p.m. instead of 10 because of falling hospitalization numbers, the county let its stay-at-home advisory lapse. The board is still urging residents to continue abiding by the safety guidelines and the advisory. They want residents to socially distance, to stay home when they're ill, to quarantine or isolate as appropriate. And this advisory, if you remember, was put in place November 18th. It was extended in December through January 31st. It limited indoor and outdoor gatherings to 10 people, but had no enforcement mechanisms. The commissioner, health commissioner for the county said that short-term extensions of the advisory were causing confusion among public agencies and other bodies who were trying to plan for the future. So they just let it lapse. And there is some good news in here in that new cases in Cuyahoga County are averaging about 270 down from 480 a day. There were 39 suburban deaths last week. Yeah, this seems like common sense that their purpose in all of these advisories, because there was no enforcement mechanism, was to get into people's heads that wear masks, don't endanger yourself. I I can't imagine there's a single person in Cuyahoga County that's not aware of what they're supposed to do, whether they're doing it, it's personal choice. Some people uh, mind bogglingly are anti-mask, but but the advisory served its purpose is what they seem to be saying. And rather than continuously extending it, it's that this is life now. Please do it and be safe. Right. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's not like the state has their own 10 person mass gathering. So these are kind of multiple layers of people telling you to do the right thing. So hopefully people do. OK, you're listening to this week in the CLE. How much money are the potential candidates for Cleveland mayor raising early in the year? And where is the money coming from? Chris Ranowski, the reports all came in last week. Seth Richardson put together a a story laying out who has what. Right. I found it surprising. I don't know if this is com. This this would be my first major city council meeting. So is it common for a lot of money to come from the suburbs to fund these races? Yes and no. I mean, people out in the suburbs who all pay taxes to Cleveland have no say in the government. So this is one of the ways they try to have a say. <laughs> right. So uh, Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly and Councilman Blaine Griffin received a majority of donations from outside of Cleveland, most of it from familiar suburbs such as Shaker Heights or Lakewood. Uh, nonprofit executive Justin Mib, the only candidate who has officially declared a run for the uh, mayor, is the only candidate who reported a majority of his donations from the city 
though he also has the highest percentage of donations coming from outside the state. Another Cleveland City Councilman, Bashir Jones, did not disclose his donors. The suburban money helped Kelly obtain a massive cash advantage over his rivals. Kelly, who has not officially announced, has more than a half a million dollars in his coffers, with Bibb being the next closest with about $160,000. What's interesting is, is that Frank Jackson, the four-term incumbent, has not announced his intentions to seek re-election or not. I think most people believe he will not. But the money is pouring in like it's an open field. In previous mayoral elections, I don't think we saw this kind of thing happening this early. So clearly the candidates believe it's the first open election since 2001 when uh, Mike White had not run and it was the incumbent wasn't in the race. So I'm, I'm sure more money will flow. That's a lot of money that Kevin Kelly has early on. And I'm not sure how much the money is going to matter in some ways, but it's, it's really about can you get out the vote, which did not happen in November in Cleveland. It's worth noting that he, he raised about 208000 from a fundraiser back in November, uh, and most of his donations came from unions, business players in Northeast Ohio. And like he got ten grand from the influential Ratner family. So yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it is kind of stunning to see that, that so many people are, are running in this race. And we still don't know who, I mean, we've only had one person declare so far. So Right, they still have a little time. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. This one's fun. Is it looking likely that Ohio will have a Senate race in which both major party candidates are women? And has that ever happened for any statewide office? Jane Cahoon, we, we talk all the time about how we don't have enough women leaders in this state, something I think you feel strongly about, but this could guarantee it. <laughs> First of all, the reason we're talking about it is that on Friday, Jane Timken resigned as as head of the chairman of the Ohio Republican Party, which is a pretty solid indication that she's going to get into this U.S. Senate race to succeed Rob Portman. And on the Democratic side, we have a lot of excitement around Amy Acton, who could be nominated. So that would set up a face-off between two women for that office. And I don't believe we've ever had a female U.S. Senator and I do think it's about damn time. But, um, <laughs> Me too, Jane. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. So actually, I did kind of strain my memory here, and then I looked this up and found a couple of, at least a couple examples of major party candidates being women running against each other for, for statewide offices. But they were both races for state auditor. Do you remember in 2006, Republican Mary Taylor beat Democrat Barbara Sykes for state auditor. And then remember Betty Montgomery? She was the attorney general for quite a while, and she was always the top vote getter when she ran statewide. But after she served as attorney general, she successfully ran for state auditor in 2003, and she beat a Democrat who, Chris, you might remember, Helen Knipe-Smith. Oh. Uh, Cleveland City Council. Oh, all right. Councilwoman, so sorry. Um, yeah. And then I don't know, do lieutenant governors count? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, so when Mary Taylor uh, ran for lieutenant governor as John Kasich's running mate, she beat Yvette McGee Brown, who was Ted Strickland's running mate. And in 2002, Jeanette Bradley was Bob Taft's successful running mate against Charlita Tavares. And then, of course, you know, we've had races for the Ohio Supreme Court. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you count that, but like the last one, Democrat Jennifer Bruner ousted Republican Justice Judy French. So, and I hadn't thought about Betty Montgomery in a while. I, I forget. Yeah, she, she right. was a powerhouse on the 
ticket. She always got a lot yeah. of votes and she did want to run for governor, but she got kind of pushed out by some some men who wanted that nomination. And then one other name you might remember, Chris, Mary O. Boyle. Now, she didn't run against a woman, but she was a, at least a U.S. Senate nominee. She ran against George Voinovich in 1998 when John Glenn was retiring. And as we know, Voinovich won that seat. Well, if it's Dr. Amy Acton and Jane Timken, we'll be guaranteed <laughs> a woman in one of the highest offices you can get statewide. Fascinating if it plays out that way. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish proposing to bridge the racial divide in county coronavirus vaccinations? Laura Johnston, we talked earlier in the podcast about the state's plan not really working to get vaccinations to minority communities. Some of the numbers that Armand Budish and company announced Friday were pretty shocking. Yeah, this is staggering. 90% of the 98,000 vaccines given out in Cuyahoga County as of Friday were to white people. So County Executive Budish is going to create an office of diversity. This has been something in the works for quite a while now. Last year, the county declared racism a public health crisis, and there's been a committee working for months to suggest ways to increase equity. So the county is already dealing with diversity and contracting to make sure enough minority-owned companies get to do business with the county. But this effort to create an office will include enlisting senior centers, faith-based leaders, community health workers, and others to distribute more vaccines to seniors in minority communities. Because think about it, like this isn't a long-term pro- like problem. This is something we need to fix right now. The Office of Diversity would have a cabinet-level position for its director, and they'd work with the County Board of Health. There's a couple other things the office will do, but right now, obviously, vaccinations are uh, utmost important. At 90% though, white. I mean, this is just an absolute failure. And, and everybody knew that this was a challenge. And, and despite all of that, we haven't met it. Maybe these, these tactics will. You certainly hope so. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the new program that provides lawyers to families facing eviction in Cleveland working? Are fewer people being evicted and keeping stable housing? Chris Ranowski, it's odd that we're talking about this following an extended period where there's been an eviction moratorium, but the people behind this have some good news to report. Right. So hundreds of people have managed to avoid eviction during the pandemic, thanks to this program that Cleveland has that provides lawyers to eligible tenants with pending housing court cases. The Legal Aid Society of Cleveland and the United Way released a report last week that touted the successes of the, in the first six months of the program. To give you just kind of a breakdown, and this is this is some good news wrapped around a, a lot of bad news, but but the report said that lawyers helped about 323 tenants in Cleveland Housing Court and, and helped them in their cases between July 1st and December 31st. But that's out of 1,600 people who reached out to inquire about the Right to Counsel program. So they were able to help a lot of people, and and what they're saying is basically like we we would like to expand this program so we can help more people. And it, I mean, this was, this was something that was passed and established by the Cleveland city council before the pandemic. So this is back in 2019. So it was designed to address a very specific problem that existed pre pandemic. And now it is getting, it's getting an additional money as a result of the pandemic through some federal programs. But, you know, I I think the the people who run this say that, that if, if they got more money, they could help more people. You know, at the very end of the story that Eric Heisig wrote, Kevin Kelly, the city council president, is quoted as saying, 
He's got to figure out what the city role is in providing more money. This is an expense for for a city that, whose budget is now challenged. And I wonder if this is the success that it appears to be, and it and it provides stable housing for people and helps them get along. Does this become more of a a statewide thing where you really seek to get the law changed and have public defenders' offices take this on? instead of having a, a budget-challenged city like Cleveland have to pay for it? I mean, I think it would be hard to... Public defenders are already... I mean, if you talk to them, they're going to tell you we are already overworked. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> they, would, they would have to create a separate system, I think, separate from the, the criminal side of, of the court system. But, you know, I mean, this is... You know, keep in mind that some of this doesn't solve people's problems, That that a lot of what is happening right now is delaying I mean, it doesn't mean people's debt to their landlords goes away. It means that they're they're delaying it because of the current financial condition, and it means that 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 financial burden is going to come on the back end. So there's there's still there's still a struggle for a lot of people. This right. just means they're not getting thrown out of their house on right. a whim, uh, you know, right. on, a, on a day. And, I mean, a bunch of these people had said they just want an extra thirty days, so yeah. they, so they keep their shelter while they make the arrangements instead of being out on the street, that's pretty key. I mean, there's nothing more important than having a stable housing and being tossed out, especially these are only people with kids that are affected by this. So, yeah, I mean, it, that's well, helpful. maybe, maybe we can throw together six or seven more blue ribbon committees to study race and equity <laughs> and, and problems, you know, as, as opposed to just paying for solutions to the problems that we know exist. <laughs> All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. I want to get one more done. We could do it short. Is it party time, Sherrod Brown style? Is he going to help the pot business get access to banks so they can process their money more easily? Ever since the legalization of marijuana in a bunch of states, Jane Cahoon, the companies that are raking in the bucks have had a problem because it's still illegal federally. They can't use banks. Right. And that forces them to use cash and it presents a security problem for them. And then they have to pay all their bills in cash, et cetera. But uh, Sherrod Brown is now the chair of the Senate Banking Committee, and uh, he said he'd be willing to move on this legislation. It passed the House previously, but it never went anywhere in the Senate because the previous Republican chairman of that committee was against marijuana legalization, so it never went anywhere. So Sherrod Brown says, yes, he's willing to move on this, but only if the measure is coupled with sentencing reform for, for drug offenses. It's another issue he feels strongly about. And those kinds of reform measures would have to go through the Senate Judiciary Committee. So they would have to coordinate that whole effort. But he definitely said he's open to this. Interestingly, when the House passed it, it hasn't been reintroduced yet in the current session of Congress. But a couple of Republicans were major sponsors of it. Steve Stivers of Columbus and Warren Davidson of, of Southwest Ohio, who's really conservative, but he, he said that the bill defends civil liberties. So it's just an interesting piece of legislation, and we'll have to see what happens. Well, it's all set up by the dichotomy of states legalizing it while it's still illegal federally, and the federal government not enforcing the laws in the states where it's been legalized, but, but you still have this major conflict going on in the law that if that didn't exist, you wouldn't need to talk about this. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, that'll do it for another half hour of news discussion. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 